As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, and welcome to Western Civ. Episode 162, Roldan's Revolt. Last time, Columbus returned to Spain after his second voyage, left, let's just say, much to be desired. La Isabella continued to limp on as the only major European settlement in the New World. Columbus's failure to find random piles of gold in the New World led him to enslave the local populations to produce ever-dwindling numbers of nuggets. The natives reacted as one might expect, leading to the first major conflict between Spaniards and Tainos in history. Spanish military technology proved supreme, and without other options, tens of thousands of natives began committing suicide. In less than 100 years, of the roughly three to 400,000 Tainos who once lived on Hispaniola, Barely 500 remained. But, through it all, Columbus is not done yet. After prostrating himself before the king and queen of Spain, Isabella and Ferdinand relented and gave their aging explorer another crack at the New World. Ravaged by illness and a life of nearly constant struggle, Christopher Columbus no doubt looked much older than his 46 years. He had twice sailed the Atlantic and twice navigated the Spanish court. After his second voyage, perhaps due to his failing health, there's something of a brooding quality that starts to emerge about Columbus. He reminded Isabella and Ferdinand, quote, I discovered for you 333 leagues of mainland at the very edge of the Orient and named 700 islands in addition to what was discovered on the first voyage. 
I pacified for you the island of Hispaniola, which is larger than Spain and inhabited by innumerable people, end quote. This was probably not wise. They were, after all, the monarchs. They made Columbus and they could unmake him. Still, he complained that he had never received the credit he deserved. Moreover, he had found evidence of gold, but believed he had been saddled with worthless colonists with zero intention of doing the actual work necessary to make La Isabella function. To an extent, I suppose he was right. These men expected easy gold, and when that proved not to be the case, they wilted in the Caribbean heat. Columbus, dressed as a penitent friar, arrived at Validad in April 1497, only to find that the king and queen had already departed. But as I mentioned at the end of the last episode, Ferdinand and Isabella quickly approved another expedition on April the 20th, 1497. He would be allowed to take 300 people to the new colony, with another 50 going at their own expense. Again, visions of gold dancing in their minds, takers were easy to find. Yet, once again, these men were not exactly the cream of the crop. The sovereigns offered to pardon any criminals who agreed to go with Columbus. Columbus needed a disciplined force, ready to obey his commands to make this work. What he got was a ragtag group of convicts waiting for a chance to cause chaos. Moreover, while the monarchs authorized around 3 million gold maravedis to pay for the voyage, by the end of February 1498, Columbus could hardly count 350,000 in his possession. The rest he had to pay for using borrowed funds from the local Genoese bank. Embarrassingly, the lack of funds led to an actual brawl between Columbus and one of his purveyors when Columbus lacked the money to pay the man. And this really was the least of Columbus's concerns. During the first two voyages, Columbus had the new world to himself. By 1498, that situation had started to change forever. In 1497, John Cabot sailed to Newfoundland. Moreover, the Treaty of Tordesillas gave the Portuguese free reign to begin their own voyages of discovery. And worse still, Ferdinand and Isabella had begun granting other explorers the right to conduct their own missions. Time was running out. Columbus's third voyage consisted of three ships, the Santa Maria, El Correo, and La Vaquinos. This time, Columbus's goal was to go as far south as he could. He hoped to find gold and gems, and here his logic fit with the prevailing ideas of the time. Most European scholars believed that precious stones came from the hottest places on earth. Thus, it made sense for Columbus to sail as close to the equator as possible. He set sail for Hero, the westernmost Canary Island, on June the 21st. There, he turned south with his three ships, while the larger fleet of supply ships made for La Isabella. By July 4th, he was past Cape Verde and sailing for the New World. If what Columbus was looking for was heat, well, he found it. 
Quote, I entered a zone of heat so intense and high that I believe that the ships and the crews we burnt up. The heat came so unexpectedly and so out of measure that not a single man dared to go below deck to salvage barrels of drink and victuals. In the intense heat, I feared that the ships would burn and that the men would perish. End quote. Here the winds died, and Columbus's fleet languished for several days until July 19th, when the breeze once more began to blow and the fleet could make good time. It was not a moment too soon. His ships were badly in need of repair, having already been at sea for nearly a month. He needed to find land. Finally, they sighted the island of Dominica, which he avoided on the second voyage, because locals told him that it was home to cannibals. This time he had no choice. He made for an island that had three outcroppings of rock, which he named Trinidad. While he did not know it, Columbus was only seven nautical miles from South America. He sailed for hours, past miles of dense forest, looking for a harbor to stop at, but he could find nothing. Eventually, Columbus decided to turn even further south. Here, his men saw huts on the shore and evidence of humans. Columbus at first thought it was yet another island, but he began to challenge that assumption as he continued sailing for 20 leagues and found nothing but more land. On Wednesday, August the 1st, Columbus arrived at the mouth of the Oricono River that divides modern-day Venezuela and Brazil. This was the first time Columbus had actually found a continent. Not that he realized it at the time, of course. He led his ships into a shallow, brackish body of water west of Trinidad. Today, it is called the Gulf of Paria, a 7,800 square kilometer body of water between Trinidad and Venezuela. Finally, dropping anchor on August the 2nd, Columbus put ashore at Icocos Point, the southwesternmost point in Trinidad, Tobago. After a time, a canoe bearing 24 natives appeared. Columbus decided that the best course was for his men to attempt a quote-unquote dance of welcome. I'm not sure if they picked the Macarena or what, but the local tribesmen interpreted this as a war dance, causing a brief exchange of projectiles. Finally, a quick-thinking pilot lowered gifts from the stern of the shift to the canoe below, which immediately terminated the hostilities. Sailing back into the Gulf of Padilla once more, Columbus and his men came face to face with the wildlife of South America for the first time, seeing anacondas, pythons, howler monkeys, macaws, parrots, and the images of jaguars. Columbus, still searching for fresh water, navigated his ship into a tight channel between Trinidad and a small island called the Isla de Gracia. This channel he named the Boca del Dragon, or Dragon's Mouth. It proved an apt name. In the early morning hours of August the 4th, a massive tidal wave crested and appeared in the horizon, heading directly for the three ships positioned precariously in the tight channel. Quote, Well into the night, I heard while on deck a terrible roar coming from the south, 
I ran to look and saw a tidal wave swelling from west to east, like a hill as high coming toward me little by little, and on its crest an advancing line was visible, roaring with great noise, with the same fury and roar of other cross-currents mentioned before, and resembling waves breaking against the rocks." End quote. Amazingly, the ship survived. The La Valaquinos anchor snapped, and the tidal wave lifted the ship to an impossible height. Even months later, Columbus would recall how he never felt so much peril out on the sea. Now, most likely, contemporary historians believe that this tidal wave was actually an anomaly. Most likely, a tsunami, the result of an undersea earthquake at least 7.5 magnitude or higher. All in all, Columbus was incredibly lucky. His life and his third voyage did not end on August the 4th, 1498. For a while, he actually seemed like a changed man. His writings around this time express a deep desire to treat the natives better. For once, it seems like he forgot all about looking for gold and pearls, though there were plenty of pearls to be had around the Venezuelan coast. Escaping the dragon's mouth, Columbus sailed to Venezuela's Paria Peninsula on August the 5th, where his men went ashore and finally found some fresh water. Somewhat bizarrely, in my opinion, Columbus now refused to accept that South America was a continent. He worked so hard to convince himself that Cuba was not an island in spite of the mounting evidence to the contrary. I find it so peculiar he now refused to believe he had actually found a continent. Yet, that's exactly what he did. Columbus, though, seems to have been a little bit more reflective, I suppose we could say, during this part of his third voyage, writing, quote, Sailing from Spain to the Indies, I find 100 leagues west of the Azores, the greatest change in the sky and stars and the quality of the air and into the waters of the sea. And I treasure that experience. End quote. Some of this turned into pure whimsy. Columbus now believed that his compass was pointing not towards north, but the way to heaven, thinking that the farther west he sailed, the more his ship would lift until it simply floated out of the water itself. Quote, Each time I sailed from Spain to the Indies, I found that when I reached a point a hundred leagues west of the Azores, the heavens the stars, the temperature of the air, and the waters of the sea abruptly changed. It was as if the seas sloped upward. End quote. Due to these observations, Columbus now began to think that the world was pear-shaped, not round. That would be weird, but it's not true. Again, Columbus always had this tendency to try to justify everything he experienced based on his pre-existing worldview. I suppose given the medieval world he came out of, this is understandable, but it certainly did hamper his objective observational skills. Quote, I do not believe that the earthly paradise is a steep mountain, except at its summit, the part I described as the stem of the pear. I believe that no one could reach the summit, for I have never read nor knew of so much fresh water penetrating so far inland and so near salt water. And if it does not come from there, from paradise, the wonder is even greater, 
because I do not believe that a river as big and deep is known anywhere else in the world. End quote. Columbus now seems to have believed he was simultaneously on the doorstep to India and paradise. To be fair, based on where he was in his life, he was much closer to the latter. He believed that God had sent him some kind of code, and if he could only decipher it, then he would find the way to heaven. Now, Columbus continued chasing paradise as he sailed to the Isla de Gracia off the Venezuelan coast. Columbus then, trying to find heaven, nearly ran his ships aground. The water between the Isla de Gracia and Venezuela can be extremely shallow, in some places only four fathoms or 24 feet deep. Columbus's ships needed three fathoms, so, thanks to a swell that happily came along, he just squeaked by. Around August the 13th, he continued sailing westward, finally coming to grips with what he had found. He wrote back to Ferdinand and Isabella, Quote, your highnesses have won these vast lands, which are an other world, in which Christendom will have so much more enjoyment, and our faith in time so increase. By using that word, other world, Columbus finally seems to have come to terms with the reality that this was not Marco Polo's India. Up to this point, everything Columbus had done was to prove he was right, that they were in India or very close. Now, his desperate voyages of confirmation seem to have turned into voyages of doubt. Later that August, Columbus decided to turn northwest and sail towards Santo Domingo. As he did so, he came upon another caravel heading in the opposite direction. It fired a warning shot the signal that the other captain wanted to meet. As the two ships drew alongside one another, Columbus realized that the captain of the other ship was none other than Bartholomew, his own brother. There was trouble at the colony. Together they sailed to Santo Domingo, where Columbus reflected, quote, When I arrived from Paria, I found almost half the people in Hispaniola in rebellion, and they had made war on me. End quote. His peaceful colony wasn't half in rebellion. It was in full-out revolt. And their leader was a man named Francisco Rodan. Frankly, in hindsight, the only thing that's surprising about Roldan's rebellion is that it did not happen earlier. I mean, Columbus took boats of criminals to a place they thought there would just be gold laying around on the beach, and then he demanded that they work hard. If that's not a recipe for disaster, I do not know what is. Well, other than not paying your mercenaries, because remember, if there's one lesson from the history of Western Civ, it's always pay your mercenaries. I mean, then to top it off, 
was the fact that Columbus left his colony to its own devices while he continued to explore. And the powder keg analogy becomes obvious. Rodin was actually the man that Columbus had appointed to be the mayor of Santo Domingo. So it was not as though he was some random upstart. The problem started in Columbus's absence for two reasons. First, as the supplies on the ships dwindled, men began to realize that they would soon have little to eat, given that they were not bothering to grow food on their own in sufficient quantities to feed themselves. Second, while Rodin was mayor of Santo Domingo, Bartholomew Columbus was governor of Hispaniola. Neither had been given any firm chain of command, so when things began to break down, it was easy for Rodin to both ignore Bartholomew and then to blame everything on him. Ultimately, Rodin settled on a very simple scheme. Capture and execute the Columbus brothers, and then convince Spain he was the right man to rule the colony. Hence, why Bartholomew was sailing away from Hispaniola when Columbus came upon him. Now, before Bartholomew just up and left, he had attempted to stop Rodin from sending a caravel back to Spain with news that the colony was in complete disorder and a request from Rodin to supplant the Columbus brothers immediately. Bartholomew quite rightly realized that whoever got to Spain first would likely see their version of events believed and hence refused Rodin permission to sail. Rodin, though, turned around and blamed Bartholomew and painted the Columbus brothers as two men who didn't care at all for the men in the colony and were happy to see them die rather than let a ship go back to Spain and ask for help. This argument held water with the disgruntled men who quickly turned on Bartholomew. Bartholomew then demanded that Rodin stand down from his office as mayor. Rodin refused saying he would not unless commanded by King Ferdinand. Rodin then took his supporters and fled into the jungle, ironically heading into a region called Zaragoa, which Bartholomew had just finished pacifying. On the way to Zaragoa, Rodin determined one last murderous scheme. He decided that they would stop at a nearby town, which Bartholomew Columbus had recently been seen at, and they would murder him. Bartholomew, who was in the town, by the way, summoned his followers to fight Rodin. Given that Bartholomew could no longer rely on the moral high ground as a sufficient reason to fight on his side, he offered anyone who took up arms against Rodin 2,000 native slaves. And so, the beautiful virgin New World devolved into banditry and a fight between two men who were effectively trying to become warlord of Hispaniola. Roldan turned around now and tried to win over the locals. He argued that Columbus, both of them, were cruel to both Christian and Indian alike. He promised the local tribes to end the forced gold searches and to treat them as equals. As an aside, 
It is evident he never planned to do any of that. A local chief whom Columbus had fought against during his second voyage eagerly agreed to join Rodin, and the attack was planned for the next full moon. As another aside, I do wonder how in the world Rodin was going to spin all this to Isabella and Ferdinand when he got back. I just don't know. I assume he was just going to blatantly lie. I don't know, say Columbus got drunk and fell off the ship or something, but that's just an assumption. Now, unfortunately for Rodin, one of the native chiefs turned out to be a terrible astronomer and attacked too early when it was definitely not the full moon. Uncoordinated, the attack failed, and Rodin was once more forced to retreat even deeper into the jungle, still claiming to fight for the natives, while simultaneously stealing from them. Oddly, Rodin also continued to promise eliminating the gold requisition, while actually demanding a higher one than the Columbus brothers had in the first place. Yet his message remained seductive, and by the time that Christopher Columbus reached Hispaniola, any betting person would have taken ten to one that the disgruntled Spaniards and natives were going to easily wipe out those loyal to Columbus and claim the island for themselves. And luck continued to be against the Columbus brothers even after Christopher Columbus returned. As Rodin moved to the west, three ships from Spain arrived bearing supplies. They overshot their destination and wound up missing Santo Domingo, where they would have enjoyed Columbus's protection. And instead, the three ships ran straight into Rodin's ragtag army in Zaragoa. The captain tried to convince Rodin to give it up. But Rodin refused, and instead commandeered the ship's supplies and ammunition. The ship's crews, by the way, eagerly agreed to support Rodin, whose promises of easy riches seemed a lot more appealing than the hard work and discipline Columbus would have offered. Columbus determined, upon arriving at La Isabela, that he would try diplomacy rather than force to solve the problem. He sent a message to the rebels, offering free passage back to Spain to anyone who wanted it. His hope was that the troublemakers would be willing to just pack up and head home. Thanks to Columbus, the journey across the Atlantic was no longer considered a death wish. Now he wanted to benefit from what he had done. As the two men approached Santo Domingo, Columbus sent his messenger to the rebel leader Rodin, entreating him to accept the offer or come to speak with Columbus himself. Columbus offered Rodin safe passage and guaranteed his person if he agreed to come. Rodin, citing what he felt were previous examples of Columbus's duplicity, refused. Personally, I'm not surprised. At the moment, it seemed like Rodin had the upper hand, and sacrificing what momentum he had seemed like a poor idea indeed. Day by day, the number of rebels increased as the number of loyalists decreased. If Columbus didn't fight soon, he would be forced to flee the island. What followed next, though, 
was a rather bizarre exchange of messages between the two men that many historians today still struggle to understand. Columbus first wrote to Rodin and promised to give Ferdinand and Isabella a favorable account of him upon his return. This part seems fine, like it's both a little carrot and stick. He might lie for Rodin's benefit, but he was kind of inversely reminding Rodin that Columbus was going to return to Spain someday. And if he was honest about Rodin's behavior, it was more than probable that the rebel would lose his head. But now around the same time, Rodin wrote to Columbus suggesting that he had done everything on Columbus's behalf. He told Columbus that they could have destroyed the island, but did not. Which is a pretty poor reason to forgive someone, I have to say. Yet, the correspondence was oddly conciliatory. And as I mentioned, historians have puzzled since, why the change of heart? My best guess is that Rodin realized he could not carve out a little kingdom for himself on Hispaniola and expect to survive for long. Eventually, Ferdinand and Isabella would send enough loyal troops to wipe him out. Thus, Roldan's best bet remained to make peace with Columbus. Now, Rodin was right. While this correspondence was going on, Columbus dispatched five ships to Spain. On these ships were around 500 native slaves and several letters for the Spanish monarchs, deploring Rodin's conduct and begging for them to send him more quote-unquote devout religious men. Columbus had now completely settled on the idea that it was the poor quality of the men that he had received why he had not been able to succeed. Quote, when I came here, I brought many people for the conquest of these lands. All of these people importuned me, saying that they would serve very well and better than anybody. But it was the reverse, because they only came believing that the gold and spices that were said to be found could be gathered with shovels, and that the spices already came tied in bundles on the seashore, so that there was nothing more to do than throw them in the ships. Thus, they were blinded by greed. End quote. Moreover, I should point out that Columbus always had to deal with a significant number of stowaways on the voyages. And these were all in addition to the criminals the monarchs made him take with him. Now, one man at least was not behind the excuses. Las Casas continued to argue that if Columbus had only made partners of the natives, instead of trying to make them slaves, he would have succeeded. He wrote to Columbus, quote, that Columbus would have done great things and produced inestimable benefit in this land if he had realized that these people did not owe anything to him or to any other person in the world just because they had been discovered. End quote. Las Casas went on to sardonically ask what right Columbus had to take lands from the natives and bestow them on his followers. And of course, Columbus would have responded, the right of the sovereigns, of course. Las Casas' complaint was somewhat timely. Roldan, as part of negotiations, 
demanded to be given a local settlement as a payment for his services. Columbus obliged and allowed Rodin to enslave those people he found there. This decision only reinforced the terrible habits that the Spanish occupation of the New World were turning into permanent character traits. Quote, The Spaniards learn, even the laborers and those who came on salary to dig and work the land and extract the gold from the mines, to loaf and walk proudly, eating from the sweat of the Indians and seizing each by force, three, four, and ten to serve them, because of the gentleness of the Indians, who neither could nor knew how to resist. End quote. Columbus, for his part, was clearly at a low point in his career. The man who had conquered the Atlantic had, in 1498, now been reduced to bargaining with a local brigand. Finally, on October the 26th, Rodin accepted Columbus's offer of safe conduct, and the two men met to try to resolve the conflict. While the two sides failed to agree on that date, by November the 6th, Rodin was ready to make a deal. Columbus offered the rebels full passage back to Spain, and even agreed to pay their wages in full. He indicated that the offer would be valid for 30 days. Amazingly, Rodin still didn't agree. I suppose given that Columbus had only a few supporters around him from a purely military perspective, his recalcitrance makes sense. But, not to belabor the point more, Rodin was going to have to go home at some point. Thus, he countered, and on November 16th, Columbus finally agreed. The terms of their agreement were, frankly, absurd. The rebels got free passage back to Spain, plus their wages. Astoundingly, Columbus was then to write a letter to the Spanish monarchs, attesting to Rodin's immaculate service while in Hispaniola which shows just how little shame Rodin had. Columbus was further obligated to provide the rebels two ships for their return voyage, manned by their own crews, as well as food for the voyage. Further still, Rodin and his men were allowed to take native slaves with them, often women who they had already impregnated, and any natural-born children. The only concession Columbus got was that Rodin agreed to sail in 50 days, and would not try to recruit anyone else to his side in the interim. Clearly, Rodin got the better of the deal. Though, from Columbus's perspective, all he wanted was to be rid of the man. And guess what? It still didn't work. In January, within the 50 days, the two ships were all set to sail from La Isabella to the rebels in Zaragua, when a storm blew up and damaged both vessels. Thus, Columbus had to stop and make repairs. It was not until April then that the ships were ready, and by that time, Rodin was claiming that Columbus had reneged on the deal. I guess the argument being that he conjured the storm up Prospero-like. Now Rodin claimed they planned to stay in Zaragoza indefinitely. By the end of August 1499, two caravels were once again ready for the rebels, when the rebels came up with yet more demands. Now they wanted Rodin restored to his former position as perpetual mayor of Santo Domingo, and they wanted land grants 
for those rebels who now wanted to stay on Hispaniola. Furthermore, if Columbus failed to meet any demands in the future, the rebels would be legally allowed to use any force to compel him. Believe it or not, Columbus agreed to each of these demands, turning Rodin once more into a legitimized foe. To quote the historian Lawrence Burgreen, Confronting a storm or a reef, Columbus displayed an intuitive knack for tactics and an ability to learn from experience. But his behavior on land was quite different. No matter how many uprisings he faced on Hispaniola, he failed to adapt and to acquire the skills necessary for leadership or even survival in his own empire. He could command the seas, master the winds, and ride the tides, but he could not fathom his fellow man. He had spent his days studying waves, not people, and knew only the cross currents and the promptings of his own heart. At that dangerous moment, he appears stagnant, unwilling to recognize that yielding to the rebels' demands emboldened rather than diminished his enemies. Now, just as matters seemed like they couldn't get any worse, four ships arrived on September the 5th, 1499. These ships, however, were not expected and were not sent to aid Columbus. The captain of the expedition, Alonso de Oeja, had been sent by the king and queen of Spain to enslave the locals and establish their own settlement. Thus, Columbus's monopoly on the New World ended precisely on September the 5th, 1499. Isabella and Ferdinand were tired of his equivocations. Columbus now had rivals, and rivals sent to perform his exact same task. I cannot say precisely how Columbus felt, but I would imagine he was heartbroken. Oeja's terms were the same as Columbus's had been. Oeja was tasked to find gold and pearls and was allowed to keep a fifth of what he found. It seems that Isabella and Ferdinand hoped that Columbus's successor would carry out these tasks with a little less headache. By the time that Oeja met up with Columbus, he had already been to South America, determining to call the region he had visited Little Venice, or, as it would become known, Venezuela. And by the way, Oeja was not the only one. Vincente Pinzon, who sailed with Columbus on the first and second voyage, landed on the northern coast of Brazil on January the 26th, 1500. Diego de Lep followed him shortly thereafter. Rodrigo de Bastidas sailed to Panama that same year. Each of these expeditions chipped away at Columbus's precious monopoly. Worst of all for Columbus, each proved that the Admiral of the Ocean Sea was no magician. Once you knew it was possible to cross the Atlantic, it was quite simple. The floodgates were open. Along with Oeja came one of the most peculiar explorers of the age, Amerigo Vespucci, the man for whom the Americas would shortly be named. I think most modern Americans would be a bit surprised to know that they're named for a Florentine explorer who actually completely fabricated his first exploration in 1497, two years before he actually went with Oeja on a voyage of exploration and discovery. Las Casas, for his part, always considered Vespucci a complete fraud. Vespucci, wrote Las Casas, would have you believe that he alone discovered the Americas. 
while of course no Columbus apologist. Las Casas still bristled at the idea that the new continents were ultimately named the Americas, not the Columbuses, after the man who actually discovered them. But such is the way of history. Oeja was actually a much greater threat to Columbus than Rodin. Oeja quickly began spreading rumors that Queen Isabella was close to death. It was well known throughout Spain that Isabella was far more attached to Columbus than her husband. If she died, then Columbus would be without a protector. It was exactly what Oeja hoped everyone would believe. Oddly, once Oeja landed, Rodin allied himself with Columbus and sought to capture the late arrival. Apparently, Rodin determined that he had already beaten Columbus. But he might not beat Oeja. Sometimes the enemy you know is better than the enemy you don't. Oeja managed to temporarily escape. Several weeks later, though, Rodin's supporters caught up with Oeja, boarded his ship, and took the man hostage. They did no harm to the recent arrival. Rodin just wanted him gone. Oeja agreed to leave by a certain date, and Rodin accepted. But still, the Columbus brothers spent the rest of 1499 crisscrossing Hispaniola, putting out the fires caused by the twin dragons, Oeja and Rodin. The New World was easy to see as an ideal from Spain. Isabella wanted the native peoples brought into the Catholic Spanish fold like long-lost siblings. There was supposed to be simply gold laying on the shore. But the reality of the New World was proving much more difficult. Columbus had stumbled upon the most important and economically significant find in the history of Europe. But exploiting these resources, well, that was proving a lot harder. If you haven't yet, please check out the website westernsibpodcast.com for more information about the show and for bonus content, link in the show notes. And if you're interested in supporting the show, for only $1 a month, you get access to every single episode in advance and it helps the show out. And for $2, you get access to all of our bonus content, two new deep dives every single month, plus extras. Check it out. Link in the show notes. Patreon.com forward slash Western Civ Podcast. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.